Maybe you're thinking that uh, chapter 7 is a very strange place to begin a series on Amos, uh, and I suppose it is, but this series began in 2015, so I'm afraid you missed the start, even some of the lecturers missed the start of this series, but hopefully we'll all be here for the end in a couple of weeks' time. Before we look at God's Word, I'm not going to read the passage today, um, I'm going to refer to it quite often in the sermon itself, but before we consider God's Word, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray now that you might tune our hearts to hear your voice as you speak to us through your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, over the past while, we've had it all. Severe drought, devastating fires, a global pandemic, even locust plagues in some places. Who would have imagined who would have thought that 2020 would turn out anything like this? Unprecedented global disaster. Despite what some conspiracy theorists might suggest, I don't think anyone really saw it coming. But what if they had? What if someone had stood up and announced such economic disaster, such worldwide catastrophe? How might they have been received? What kind of response would they have elicited? Well, it's impossible to say for sure, but I reckon Amos 7 gives us a fairly good impression. Here we see how such bad news is typically received. Amos anticipates phenomenal disaster, and Amaziah, the priest, offers a fairly standard human response. As I'm sure you know, Amos was one of the 8th century prophets, a contemporary of Micah. Uh, Amos was a southerner, like Micah, a Judean, but God had sent him to, called him to prophesy in a northern state in Israel. I'm not told what Amos was doing there in the first place. Quite possibly he had been there on business, but whatever brought him north, Amos didn't shy away from the task that God gave him. As previous chapters have shown, he boldly proclaimed God's word to a society that was deeply religious but it turned its back on God. A society that had ignored God's repeated warnings and was now ripe for judgment. So here in chapter 7, the divine gloves come off, as it were. The time for mercy is almost over. And I say almost because even at this late stage, God still shows some degree of clemency. This is clear from the first pair of visions that we read about here in chapter 7 and how God responds to the prophet's plea for mercy. In each of the first two visions, God makes his intentions clear. He discloses what he's about to unleash on the land of Israel. Plan A, if you like, was to strip the land clean, to set loose a swarm of locusts, one that would destroy the coming harvest. If, like me, you've watched the 1999 remake of The Mummy, you remember that scene where Imhotep, the mummy, the living dead, takes a, a very deep breath before exhaling a, a really large swarm of locusts. Well, Amos doesn't tell us how God was preparing such a locust invasion here, but he does tell us when he was doing so. After the king's share had been harvested, just as the late crops were coming up. In other words, the bureaucracy, the elite, had already taken their cut. It was the common people, 
the commoners who were going to suffer most here. The extent of such devastation would be dreadful, so much so that Amos just cries out in protest, Sovereign Lord, forgive! How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Clearly, Amos took no pleasure in the judgment that he was announcing, the judgment that he foresaw, the disaster that was looming on his northern neighbors. Rather than clapping his hands together in glee, Amos cries out to God in prayer. He pleads for forgiveness. He calls on God to be merciful, to hold back this judgment that he was planning. Not because it was undeserved, but because Jacob could not survive it. And so the Lord relents. God listens to this plea for mercy. Plan A is put to one side. It won't happen, the Lord assures him. But Israel's not out of the the woods yet. Amos has given yet another glimpse of God's intentions. Plan B was judgment by fire. A blazing inferno was about to be kindled, one far more devastating than our summer bushfires or those that are presently ravaging California. This nuclear holocaust would dry up the great deep, that is, the subterranean ocean would evaporate, not just the Mediterranean Sea. This firestorm would engulf the land. It would consume it much more thoroughly than those locusts might have done. The image is again one of unmitigated disaster. So not surprisingly, Amos again responds by pleading for mercy. Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. And once again, on the basis of this petition, the basis that Israel cannot possibly hope to survive, they wouldn't just be decimated. They'd be obliterated. They'd be wiped out. So once again, the Lord relents. This won't happen either, he says. But let's not jump to the wrong conclusion here. None of this means that God was dithering, that God couldn't make up his mind, or that his plan to judge Israel had been set aside altogether. This was plainly not the case, as is evident from the third scenario that Amos has shown, a further image of divine judgment. This time he sees God standing by a wall, standing there with something in his hand. Traditionally, that something has been understood as a plumb line, But that translation is rather unlikely. Of course, that's a great pity. Many a fine sermon has been preached along such lines. The idea of God holding up a straight edge to twisted human beings has obvious, very obvious homiletical appeal, and it's quite easy to to apply. But unfortunately, we really don't know what this word that Amos uses here means. It only occurs here, nowhere else, other than it highlights Israel's vulnerability. Some think it refers to tin, so perhaps it was a wall of tin, and the picture is of God crushing Israel's defenses as we might mangle an empty soda can in our hand. But possibly a more destructive instrument is in view here. Maybe a sledgehammer or a wrecking ball might be closer to the mark. But whatever it is, whatever the precise image that Amos is seeing here, one thing is absolutely clear. This anarch in God's hand, this anarch that God would set among his people, it's extremely bad news for Israel. I will spare them, literally I will pass over them no longer, God declares. 
the high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, my instrument of judgment, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. They may have escaped the threat of natural or cosmic disaster, but they'll not escape God's coming wrath. And this time there's no prophetic protest. This time there's no appeal for forgiveness or mercy. Perhaps that's because the judgment is now more focused. It's not simply on the land in general. It's the high places, the sanctuaries, the idolatrous shrines that are going to be ruined and destroyed. It's the house of Jeroboam that's caught in God's crosshairs. But maybe the main reason we hear nothing from Amos this time round is because attention abruptly shifts here to Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. It's not exactly clear when this verbal exchange took place, but whether it was on this particular occasion or some other occasion is beside the point. Here it serves a rhetorical function. It underlines that such an unreceptive audience was ripe for judgment. Like many religious people, Amaziah took offense at the message that he heard or deliberately misheard, as the case may be. Notice the spin that he puts in his official report to the king. He says, Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. No, he wasn't. The land cannot bear all his words, for this is what Amos is saying. Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Amaziah accuses Amos of being a political agitator, a subversive, someone trying to stir up anarchy and rebellion. He even claims that Amos has predicted the king's violent death, and yet Amos has said no such thing. It's the house, the dynasty of Jeroboam, of which Amos has spoken. Yet Amaziah was right about one thing. Amos had clearly announced that Israel would go into exile. Indeed, he had announced this several times by this stage. Indeed, Amos reiterates this again in his response to, to Amaziah in verse 17. So on this point, Amaziah had clearly heard correctly. But like most who ignore God's warnings, Amaziah simply didn't like what he was hearing. And so he despises the messenger, and he rejects the message. This reminds me of my very first attempt at door knocking. I had only been a Christian for just a few months, and I found myself standing at the door of the local Anglican clergyman. And as soon as he realized what I was selling, he told me in no uncertain terms that I was completely unqualified. I didn't have his theological expertise. To address him on such weighty matters, I needed a theological degree of some kind. And so he dismissively sent me packing, like Amaziah attempts to do here with Amos. Amaziah instructs him to clear off home and to earn his bread there. He dismisses Amos as a, an unwelcome street trader, a self-interested purveyor of fake news. The good people of Bethel don't need or don't want what you're selling, preacher man. Indeed, it's, it's, it's very inappropriate for you to do so here, here in our national sanctuary. For Amaziah, it was a bit like promoting pacifism at the National War Memorial or defending republicanism in Westminster Abbey. It was clearly unacceptable, as Amaziah's response makes clear. Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread and do your prophesying there. At least you'd be paid there, as we heard from Micah. The prophets down in Judah preached for money. 
See, this was simply not an option for Amos. See, this wasn't a task that he had taken upon himself. Amos wasn't a professional prophet at all. Amos was a farmer. But God had called him. And God had given him this message to proclaim. His message had not come from a professional guild. It had come from the sovereign Lord. And so Amos had no intention of listening to this, this sanctimonious cleric. Instead, he re reiterates his message. And he applies it more pointedly to Amaziah himself. Rather than escaping the coming judgment, Amaziah would, would experience the full horror of God's wrath. His wife would be violated. His children would be killed. His property would be parceled out as plunder. And he himself, a priest, would die in an unclean land. And Israel, Israel would share this fate. Because they had rejected God's word, Israel would surely go into exile away from their native land. Like Amaziah, Israel was ripe for judgment. And this is further underlined by the fourth vision in this series, chapter 8, verses 1 to 3. This time, Amos encounters a basket of summer produce. Its significance is explained, however, by means of a wordplay. What Amos actually sees is a basket of kayets, a basket of summer fruit. Whereas what Yahweh declares is that the kets, the end, has come for my people Israel. The NIV has captured the wordplay by using the word ripe each time. Amos sees a basket of ripe fruit. Yahweh declares that the time is ripe for his people Israel. Just as the fruit is ready to eat, so the people are ready for judgment. Ready in the sense that their number's up. Ready in the sense that the end has come and that God will spare them no longer. There'll be no more appeals. There'll be no further stays of execution. Temple singing will turn into bitter wailing. Instead of people milling around, dead bodies will be scattered everywhere. Rather than the sound of music, utter silence. It's a sobering image. And surely all the more so since it foreshadows that great and final day of the Lord. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels to punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. That's not a message that those around us want to hear. And yet it's a message that those around us need to hear. We live in a suburb. We live in a city. We live in a country. We live in a world that's equally ripe for judgment. And like Amos, it's our responsibility to tell them whether they listen or fail to listen. Yes, undoubtedly, we will encounter our Amaziahs, those who reject the message, those who despise the messenger, those who do their best to silence us and mute God's prophetic word, those who consider the message we preach both irrelevant and even insulting. Those who would prefer that we do our preaching elsewhere, anywhere that is, than on their doorstep or in their neighborhood or at their church. But as with Amos, so with us. This is not something up for debate. This is not open to compromise. God calls us to preach the word 
and be prepared in season and out of season to correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. Our God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, and clearly neither did Amos, and surely neither should we. Unlike many around us, we know the terrifying reality of the situation our world presently faces, that there's a pandemic that is far worse than COVID. Its consequences are much more serious than death. Like Amos, we know that our society is ripe for judgment. We know that God will punish with everlasting destruction those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so, like Amos, we pray. And like Amos, we preach, we exhort, we warn. We refuse to be silenced so that fear might face such terrifying judgment on that final day. Let's pray. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees, a need that undiminished rebukes our slothful ease, we we who rejoice to know thee renew before thy throne the solemn pledge we owe thee to go and make thee known. Lord, hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.